In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I am a minister in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring to completion for you the word of God. The mystery hidden from ages and from generations past, but now it has been manifested to his holy ones, to whom God chose to make known the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It is Christ in you, the hope for glory. It is he whom we proclaim, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. For this I labor and struggle in accord with the exercise of his power working within me. Father, we thank you for gathering us here tonight. Help us to learn what it means to be human, to be your creatures made in your divine image, to love and be loved by you, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us um, to understand your will for our lives and its own particular grace and calling. Help us to respond to that grace with courage and wisdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you for coming out for another one of these installments of um, Catholicism 101. I was debating what to uh, talk about tonight. Uh, I settled on how to be human, uh, which is a pretty general topic, but uh, in the world of theology, it's called Christian anthropology, um, the study of man in the, in the gender-neutral sense, mankind. Um, what, is it, what do Christians say? What does the Bible say? What's the Catholic Church say about what it means to be human? Up to this point, we've talked about, for the first one was prayer, how to have a relationship with God, um, have a heart-to-heart with God. And then, like, who is Jesus? How does he save us? Last time we talked about sacramental grace and the grace of the church and how we get the salvation of Christ. And this, in, in a certain way, is taking a little bit more broader perspective or higher level. Um, even before Christ and the church and the sacraments, there was us. There was Adam and Eve and all their children, um, and the, human, the question of what is the meaning of human life has plagued humankind since the beginning. Um, and there have been lots of different answers to that. So our, our Christian answer is a particular one. Um, I want to start by telling the story from, uh, from college. I was a junior or maybe a senior. I took a philosophy class. I'd been studying biochemistry. And I realized I hadn't really taken any humanities. And I thought that was bad. So I, I decided to just sign up for like a philosophy 101 kind of thing. It was ancient philosophy. And I had read a little bit just as like I was interested in uh, my faith and whatnot. And you cross over and read a little bit of philosophy when you're reading theology. And I knew the term natural law. And um, it came up in this class. And the, and the teacher sort of dismissed it as kind of absurd, the idea that there was such a thing as a natural law. And he said, uh, it, you know, like Matthew and uh, Mark and Israel, you guys are obeying the natural law, but, and, and Dan, but Ben and Enrique and me, we're not obeying the natural law because we shave our beards and you guys let your beards grow. And nature wants your beards to grow, and so you're breaking the natural law. So the idea that there's some kind of law in nature that we're uh, obliged to obey is kind of stupid because um, if you say that, then you, you say that it's a sin to shave. So um, 
he kind of dismissed it as this ancient idea from Aristotle or Plato or whoever, Thomas Aquinas, and it really didn't have any bearing on morality or the idea of uh, what's right and wrong today. It's an outdated idea. I knew that that was silly, that that wasn't really a serious argument, but I didn't really know why. Um, what, what it's a misunderstanding of is what we mean by natural or nature, because when you say that there's a natural law, there are lots of levels of natural laws, like gravity is a law of nature. Um, you cannot disobey the law of gravity, at least I can't. Um, it's just everywhere that we've ever been, there's this law that uh, masses attract one another at a certain ratio. Um, there are laws in animals and plants' natures that like through instinct or self-preservation or the desire for the, to, to replicate the genome, um, things act in a certain way, like plants have a certain nature, animals have a certain nature, dogs act in a certain nature. And so human beings have a nature. And uh, their nature is unique among all the other natures. Because we're, our, ours is the only one, we're, we're capable of knowing what nature is in the first place. We're the only ones that ever use that word in the whole universe, as far as we know. So we are like in nature, we're part of nature, but we're also above it. And as part of our nature, there are certain obligations. Shaving is not one of them. Like there are in different cultures and different places, you know, the grooming habits of men or women are different. Um, but wherever you go, almost without exception, uh, human beings agree it's wrong to kill innocents. Right? That's just part deeply written into our nature as human beings, that we just know that. There's a keen sense of justice and fairness, and we might disobey those things. We, people might kill other people, even innocent people, but we know deep down something in our nature, namely our conscience, tells us that is a violation of the natural law. By nature, we shouldn't do that. We know that. So we're obliged in a certain way. We're the only nature that can break our nature. We're the only ones that can't, like a dog really can't, a plant can't. Nobody can break the law of gravity, but the moral law, the natural moral law that's knowable even before God reveals us any Ten Commandments or anything like that, it's knowable and it's violable. We can break it if we choose to, because part of our nature too is that we're free. We have free will. Okay, so I just bring that up because it's, it's a live question. And you might run into it in college, you know, like what, what do Christians believe about human nature? It might be different because one of the advantages of dismissing natural law as kind of a silly old notion is that now if, if the laws of morality aren't written into our nature, then we just make them up as we go. Then sometimes it might be right to kill innocents if it's convenient, right? There's nothing written down in stone or in flesh or in our hearts or in our DNA that says always and everywhere this is wrong or this is right. We can kind of make it up. It's all dependent on culture and custom and whatnot. So it's an important question. So what do we say about human nature? What, what makes it distinct? Well, in the beginning, this is, uh, I couldn't find a picture of just Adam in the garden. Because you know in the creation story, at first it's just Adam. And he's alone. And God sees it's not good for man to be alone. Well, is he actually alone? Not at that point, right? He's surrounded by animals and plants and 
the stars and the moon and like all this stuff that God's created is surrounding him. It's, it's in the story of Genesis. But he feels alone. He's in this original solitude where although he's accompanied by all sorts of things, there's no people there with him. He has no equal to share his life with. And so God creates his helpmate Eve. And then when he sees her, he's wowed. He's amazed. He says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Someone who is the same as me, but different. And it says that he made them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them in his image. So what does that mean? That Adam and Eve together make up the image of God. Each one of them individually, Adam is the image of God, Eve is the image of God, but also corporately or collectively, they are the image of God in their relationship, namely of marriage, of the one flesh union of marriage. What separates them from the rest of nature is that they're made in this divine image, the image of God, or in Latin, the imago Dei. And as part of that, they have a rational soul, namely reason and free will. They have the ability to know things, an intellect to reason on things about the universe. They can also choose freely, unlike the rest of nature. They have a conscience, which obliges them. It's a voice in their heart that we assume that in their original innocence before they sinned, they could hear it very clearly. It was like God, just as God speaks to you through your conscience, but sometimes darkly because we're sinners and we tend to kind of quiet our conscience, or if it's inconvenient, we ignore it for a while. And the more you ignore your conscience, the less you hear it. Well, Adam and Eve, in their original innocence, they would have walked with God in easy friendship and they would have heard, do good, avoid evil, you know. Like God's voice, it's God's voice in our hearts, in live uh, action, like as we're going through our, our day, we have this instinct, this moral instinct about what we're supposed to do or what we must do because we're human. That's called our conscience. We also have this thing in Latin called capax dei. We're capable of God. That's kind of literally what it means. But namely, it really means we're capable of receiving God or having a friendship with God. We're the only animal uh, that's able to do that, able to know our creator and give him glory. I mean, St. Francis would say that all of nature gives God glory. But the thing is, it doesn't know that it's giving God glory. We're the only ones that know that creation sings of God's glory. We look up at the stars, like the psalmist says, you can't, you know, like I look up in the heavens and I think, what is man that you keep him in mind, mortal man that you care for him? We see how small we are and yet how much God loves us. So we're capable of, of knowing that, which is very unique and beautiful. We're also capable of reflecting, this is the image of God, reflecting his love in the way we love one another. So that's why together Adam and Eve made up the image of God because Adam, just as then after Jesus, we know God is triune. We talked about that too, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is a relationship of love. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, and together their love being a third person, the Holy Spirit. So Adam loves Eve, Eve loves Adam, and their total one flesh, free, uh, loving union, there's fruit in it, namely a third person, a child. Right? That we reflect God's love in the sacrament of marriage. Uh, it wasn't a sacrament until Jesus, but uh, nevertheless, it, was, it existed before Jesus from the very beginning. This is the reflection of God. So all of this, rational soul, intellect, free will, the ability to have a friendship with God, the ability to love and be loved, this is all unique to human nature. 
and it's, it's part of Christian anthropology, part of the, the Christian way of thinking about the human person. There's also some wisdom that we can get from um, the Greeks, Greek philosophy. Has anyone ever read Plato? Good, Plato's great. Um, there's, a, there's a dialogue uh, in Plato. One of the most famous uh, dialogues of Plato is the Republic. But this one, and, I'm, and now I'm, I should have looked this up or written it down because I'm forgetting if it's the Phaedrus or the Phaedo, something like that, this dialogue where um, Plato is talking about the human soul and what makes the human soul go. And he describes it with this allegory of a chariot. And this pot actually has a picture of the chariot. There's the, there's the charioteer, and then there's the light horse and the dark horse. And it makes up these, these three characters make up the three parts of the soul. So the charioteer who's guiding the chariot is reason, or your highest faculty, your mind. The light horse is the spirited aspect of the soul, or desire, or will, emotion. That's driving the soul, so it's like giving it energy, and reason is directing it where to go. And then the dark horse is your appetite, your lower desire for food, drink, sex, the lower things. So both of these are like energies of the human soul that look outside of it and want things. But one is kind of better <laughs> or higher, and one is kind of lower and more animalistic. But the reason, the gift of reason, the part of the soul that knows and, can, and kind of like sees the big picture, the philosophical mind, according to Plato, is the one guiding those horses. Like sometimes it is time to eat. Sometimes it is time to procreate. But we shouldn't be doing those things all the time, or in every place, right? Those, so it's, it's better to let the light horse more drive the train than, than letting the dark horse. But what Plato says is that in the corrupted man, the dark horse has taken over, right? And has guided, has guided reason. And now reason is even in the service of, um, this is when someone's in the throes of addiction, that reason is rationalizing and justifying and lying to the self and to others in order to keep the dark horse in charge. But unless the dark horse is disciplined and the light horse is allowed to, to more drive the train, then this can happen in the soul. So this is one way of looking at the human soul, which I think lines up a lot with the Christian understanding of the soul. There's also another important Greek concept um, called the person. The whole idea of a person is from a Greek word, prosopon, which doesn't literally mean person. It does uh, mean person kind of by extension, but first it means two things, face and mask. So like in the old like theater things, you know, the happy mask and the sad mask that comes from the Greek dramas, those masks were called prosopa. Prosop the prosopon was the mask that the actor put over their face and spoke through. It actually means to speak through or to sound through. Per son, is to like so sonar or... or Suena is like to sound through a thing. So that was where that, that word comes from. And it's very evocative when you think about what a person is or how do you address a person. I don't speak to just any part of your body. I speak to your face. And that's kind of important. Like I, I know where you are as a person, even though like you, you, I, I have a hand, I have arms, I have legs, um, I have a head, I have a face, but... Like, none of those things are me. So how do we even know what part of the person to talk to? I mean, it's kind of a silly question because everybody just knows it by instinct. But if you think about it, and this is what philosophy is, it's like thinking about questions that nobody thinks about until 
life doesn't even make any sense. But you talk to the person's face because you know that's the seat of their... And to degrade a person is to look at their par- the parts of their body and to kind of treat them like an object or something or a collection of body parts rather than a unified whole as a person. So you look at their face when you speak to them. But at the same time, the face is like a mask. It conceals the person just as much as it reveals the person. Isn't that right? Like there's, even though I see you and I look at you, even though I might listen to you as you sound through this mask, I have an idea of who you are, but there's still part of you that I can never know. I will never know you the way you know yourself or the way God knows you. We all wear masks. And this is something uh, John Paul II calls the incommunicabilis, the incommunicable part of the person. That each and every one of us is a uniqueness. This is the other thing that separates us from every other object in the universe. Is that we're not an object, we're a subject. Which makes us responsible for our actions, makes us have our own unique perspective and point of view on the universe, our own unique set of desires and plans and intentions that no one can want for me. No one can think for me. I have to think for myself. And there's some part of me that I cannot ever really communicate. I can never transfer over to someone else. It's, and it's part of like the really difficult thing about being a human. When you grow up out of you know, like ch- childhood and you start really thinking about human life, you start asking yourself these questions. It's like, am I, does anyone really know me? And it can be a question that if you don't have a relationship with God or you don't have some close relationship with someone who does know you at least pretty well, it can be very lonely to be human. You ever notice that dogs, cats, and pigs, things like that, they don't really need like antidepressants and anti-anxiety <laughs> medicines because they don't ask themselves these questions because they're not incommunicable. You can pretty much know a dog. You can predict what they're going to do, but a human being, they're always unique, incommunicable. And so there's this thing that John Paul II also talks about called the personalistic norm. As a person, you must never be used, only loved. As a person, persons may never be used. This is part of the natural law. And we know this deep down. Like you didn't need to be, have this revealed to you by God. It helps when he points it out. But, and Christ certainly emphasizes this. You cannot use persons. You must love them only. You can use objects, but persons aren't objects. They're subjects. They're only to be revered, respected, held as sacred, and loved. What does it mean to love a person? First of all, what does it mean to use a person? It can mean I subordinate your plans, ends, intentions, desires to my plans, intentions, desires. So you're just part of my world. You might be useful to me for me to gain power, or advance my career, or just because I enjoy you. I enjoy being with you, you're a friendship of convenience, or I might use you for some kind of uh, physical or sexual satisfaction, but I'm not respecting you as a person. I'm not loving you, I'm just using you for my own selfish ends. It might look like love, it might look like companionship or even friendship, but it's not love. Unless and until I want what you want. That's what it means to love is that I don't subordinate your desires to mine. On the contrary, I subordinate my desires to yours. This is, by the way, what it means to love God as well. 
to want what God wants, to love what God loves. And so the call as human persons in a world of human persons is to love the persons around us, namely to become mutually obedient in a certain way, like to subordinate my will to yours. What does St. Paul say? Always precede each other in showing each other honor. You know, like one of the things that, one of the things that really struck me my first year in seminary was this deacon who uh, at one of the meals, like we'd have fancy meals every once in a while, and there was always one chair around the table that had an apron, and whoever chose that chair had to be the waiter for the meal. And this deacon, who was just a couple months from being a priest, um, he took, I, I was sitting down, of course I avoided that chair, I didn't want to be the waiter, and he, even though there were empty chairs, he chose it. And uh, I was like, what, what is that about? Why did you choose that? He's like, actually deacon means waiter. Like in Greek, diakonos actually means one who serves a table. That's where the whole title of deacon came from. And I, I was so... I was so repulsed by that. I thought, oh, that stinks, man. Like the, the more you become uh, like higher up in the spiritual life or in the church life or try to obey God, the more you have to be everybody's slave. But that's what it means to love. And that's what Christ shows us, is that Christ is the only one who actually lives a really human life. He shows us how to be a human being. But we often don't do that. We subordinate other people's desires, intentions, and plans to our own. So we use people instead of loving them. Notice that God always treats us as persons. He could force us to believe in him. He could force us to obey him, couldn't he? He has the power to do that. All the animals do, they obey their natures by nature. Only only us, only do we have the freedom because God treats us with this reverence and respect to, like, let us wander. We can reject him if we want. And so, like, if you feel possessive of another person, or you feel like, I can't be rejected by you, or trying to coerce them, even if it's a good thing, like you're trying to get them to go to church, right? You can never force someone against their will to believe or to love or to do anything. You're not allowed to do that. You must always revere and respect their freedom the way that God does, because they're persons. Okay, so to be human is to be loved, to love and to be loved. That's the ultimate call. The human vocation is self-donation. We're all looking for a way to give ourselves away. And until we do that, we're lost. So I love this quote from, um, from John Paul II. This is in Love and Responsibility. Human beings cannot live without love. Oh, this is actually from his address to the, to the youth at World Youth Day. Human beings cannot live without love. They remain beings that are incomprehensible to themselves. Their lives are senseless if love is not revealed to them. They do not encounter love. They do not experience it and make it their own. There's another great quote. I'm I'm sure I've shared it with you. St. Augustine, my great hero, said in the very beginning of his confessions, Lord, you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. It's like the formula of Christian anthropology. We are made for God. We came from him. And until we get home, we're like, we're restless. Until we get God back, or we're back in him, our heart looks around for him. And even if it doesn't know that it's looking for God, it thinks it's looking for power or sex or pleasure or money or whatever thing you think you're you're looking for in life, you're actually looking for God. So all those things will always disappoint you. So I remember one time I was sitting in the cam room, the common room at our uh, hallway in the seminary watching TV. My friend Kyle walks in. There was a fridge in there, and there'd sometimes be snacks or drinks. And he just opens the fridge, and he just stands there, and he goes, 
I'm not really hungry. I just kind of want to eat something. (laughs) And I was like, I know exactly that feeling. I know exactly that feeling. Because you're restless. You don't know what to do. You're like, you feel some desire, something, and you're like, maybe the dark horse. I'll just go with the dark horse. That's, you know. But what your heart is really looking for, what your heart is really restless for, is divine love. And in order to receive that, you have to make yourself kind of vulnerable. You can't be in control the same way you can with something you're addicted to, like nicotine or food or, or alcohol or something, something that you, you can pour yourself into because you can control it. You can make, make it make you feel good when you want it to. With God or with other people, they don't do that. Subordinating your will to someone else's will, the obedience of love, in the long run, that's going to make you happier. But have you ever felt that, I don't really feel like loving people right now. I actually feel like taking care of myself and just doing something that's immediately gratifying. And then afterwards, you're like, wish I didn't do that. Okay, that's the human heart. uh, Blaise Pascal said, the heart alone is infallible. The mind can fall. The mind can make mistakes. You can convince yourself that this is actually what you want. But your heart will know that it's not. And if you give your heart that thing that you think you want and you're wrong, your heart will be like, I don't want that. Stop giving me that. And then... If your mind finally gets the message and goes to what you're actually looking for, a relationship with God or a relationship of love with another person, your heart will be at ease. Your heart will be at rest because it knows. Okay, so what's the problem? The problem is sin. That we've sinned. That Adam and Eve chose not to live this way. They chose not to be human. What they thought they were doing, it's, an, it's a great irony of the Bible. What Eve thought she was doing, what she believed the serpent in, was that this will make me like God. If I choose what's right and wrong, if I have the knowledge of good and evil, I will be like God, making all the rules and seeing things the way they really are. But actually what happens after Eve sins and Adam sins is that now they're slaves not to their higher nature, but to their lower nature. They tried to be above human, but actually fell to the animal level, even maybe below the animal level. Because dogs and uh, animals, they, they might do mean things. They might hurt other animals or kill other animals even to survive. But they're not as wicked as human beings who will just cause pain to cause pain. You know what I mean? The problem of human evil is that, that we're like even worse than the animals. That's why so many people are like, I'd rather just have a dog because at least the dog always loves me. Right? But human beings, they're kind of like, they might love you sometimes, but then they might turn on you. Okay, this, this whole choice of Adam and Eve's to be gods unto themselves and to make their own rules, in other words, to refuse to be obedient to God's will, to love God above all things and their neighbors as themselves, it causes them to be lower than human. And so this is the great mistake that my philosophy professor made in college, was that he thought like, oh, shaving, that's the natural, like the natural law is to let... Be like an animal, basically. Let your hair grow out. Just be natural, man. But actually, that's, not, that's the opposite of what the natural law calls for. The natural law calls, calls us to be higher than the animals, to live up to our vocation as human beings. So breaking the natural law is not things like making airplanes fly or doing blood transfusions or like technology or high-minded things. That's not breaking the natural law. The natural law is like making your life about something other than God or other than love, making your life about money, or pleasure, or power, or honor. 
these things that are lower than you deserve, lower than you actually want. The human vocation is always higher. And so the great irony is that in their reaching up, they fell. Okay, and until then, until Christ came and emptied himself and came down to our level, we were enslaved in this way. We could not help but sin. And that's called concupiscence. Concupiscence is the thing in us, the appetite in us, that makes it easy to do bad things and hard to do good things. Okay, it makes, us, makes it hard to obey our conscience, in other words. Also, after the, after the first sin, did you notice that Adam and Eve's scapegoat? So, um, God says to Adam, after he's hiding, he's like, oh, you must have sinned. Who, you know, why did you, why did you eat the fruit that I forbid you to eat? He said, that woman who you put here with me made me do it. <laughs> it's this defense mechanism that we all inherited from them to defend ourselves against confronting our own shame, our own responsibility for sin. And then Eve scapegoats the serpent. God gets mad at everybody. <laughs> right? But we're stuck in this cycle of sin where they could have maybe, just like Peter um, asked for forgiveness and Judas didn't. And so Peter was forgiven and became the first pope and Judas killed himself because he couldn't bear the shame of having betrayed Jesus. If they had just been able to accept responsibility for their fall, who knows? But it was like this scab over the wound of having betrayed God was just hardened up so that we, you know, it wouldn't hurt us even more. We just said, no, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's always someone else's problem, not mine. And it's like the devil's ultimate trick to get us to, to turn away from the very thing that might heal us. Okay? And so the important rule here is that after Adam and Eve, after the first sin, sin becomes inevitable. This is why we baptize babies. We know that even though they're innocent, sweet babies that one day they're going to become liars and thieves and, and sinners, just like the rest of us. And so they need divine grace. They need God's grace to become saints. Sin is inevitable, but it's not irresistible. And this is an important Catholic distinction. You can resist sin. By your nature, you're always free. You have the dignity of a human person. You are free. You do not have to do anything you don't want to do. There were people in concentration camps in World War II who chose to remain human. Viktor Frankl is a great read. If you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl is a survivor of the Holocaust who the entire time just thought of his wife and his child that this is why I'm living. This is why I will not reduce myself to an animal. Like so many people in those camps under so much pressure, understandably, became like animals. They did anything they could to survive, even kill other people or hurt other people, to take their bread, cause others to starve so that I could live he decided, I'm going to stay human and continue to share what, what little I have to help people even though it might hurt me. You are free in every moment to resist sin. But the problem is our ability, because of concupiscence, to, to do so is radically compromised and we all inevitably fall into sin. And so the question is, how do you get out of that? This is the way out. Let's briefly at the end here. There's a great story a friend of mine told me that he, he shares a baptism um, prep with, with parents. Like, what does it mean to get baptized? And it's a little parable. So there's this guy walking on a hill, and he's not watching where he's going. It's a beautiful sunny day, and it's like a mountainside. And he's going for a hike, and he, doesn't, he, he trips and he falls, and he falls into this hole. And it's actually like a cave, almost like a well, you know, like 
just this really deep hole, and he falls down in it and gets to the bottom, and he's hurt and can't climb out, and he's scared, and he looks up at this ring of light, and he calls up, and nobody's there to help him, until finally his friend comes by and calls down in the hole. He was looking for him. He says, ah, at last I'm saved. So his friend... um, tries all he can to get him out, like, but the guy's too weak to hold on to the rope, or the rope's not long enough. Or there's just no way for him to come out the way that he, he went. And uh, so his friend finally just jumps down into the hole with him, without any equipment. And the guy's like, great, now we're both trapped down here. What'd you do that for? And he looks to, uh, around, and there's tunnels in this cave. He's like, it's okay, I know the way out, follow me. And so that guy has a, has a decision to make in that moment. Do I trust him that he actually knows the way out or that there is a way out? And do I follow him into that darkness, into those holes, into those t- tunnels, trusting that somehow he's going to bring me out eventually back to the top where I came from, the paradise, the light? So you, and then after you decide that and you get off your keister and you follow him, are you going to hang on to him? Are you going to stay following him? Even when he comes to some part and it's really dark and really narrow or you have to jump over this whole big crevice and take a big leap of faith, uh, are you going to still do it? Or are you going to go, nah, that's an easier way. I might go here. Or I might just sit and stay and wait and not make any decision. So hopefully you see the allegory here that it's, it's like life. We've all fallen somehow from our nature, what we were meant to be, to reflect God's glory, to be obedient to his will and so love him and love each other. No, we turned from God, we betrayed him, became our own gods, and now slaves to our lower passions, and now we use each other for these selfish passions, and, and we don't love each other. So how do we get out? Well, Christ has come down into our situation. That's what I love about this picture from before. Who is the woman on the right? It's Mary. So Eve is clutching this fruit, and, but holding the, uh, or touching the womb of, of the Blessed Mother he is the one that's come down into the situation to become sin, taking on sinful flesh, namely flesh that dies, but not knowing sin, to live a truly human life. So this is, the again, the irony is that Adam and Eve overreached. They went too high. And Jesus comes low. That human nature is a crown that God wanted to put on us. Say, you are the crowning achievement of all my creation. Everything that exists, all these billions and billions of galaxies, all of this stuff is just for you so I can have a place to love you. And I gave you hearts that could receive my love, to be my friend, and you turn from me. We wouldn't kneel to receive the gift of human nature, to receive this crown. We had to stand up and be our own gods and then all of a sudden we got in this chaos situation. So Jesus comes down into our nature and kneels down and accepts it for us. And now if we join ourselves to him, we too can finally be human again. You know, there's the story in the, in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? And how they uh, want to build a tower to heaven because, again, they want to be like God. That's the, whole, that's the whole tragedy of human beings is they won't just be human. They won't just be creatures. They have to be God. And that just corrupts us so badly. It makes us animals. If we would just be humble and accept the gift of being God's creatures. Okay, so what happens when they try to build that tower? God sees it. And it's kind of a joke. All these stories are like a joke. Oh, no, they're going to become like me. They're going to get to heaven. And so he curses them and makes them all speak different languages. So they can't work together anymore. 
And that's supposedly the, the beginning of different languages. Well, what's the story of Pentecost? When Jesus has died, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, fulfilling God's will in a human nature, and now he's given us his spirit, first to the apostles and then to all who, you, who they baptize. And that spirit, what is, what, what is the manifestation, the sign that the Holy Spirit is among these men, that everyone hears them as if they're speaking their language, that like all of a sudden the difference of languages and cultures and everything disappears and the human family becomes one again. Or this is a sign that's, that's foreshadowing that, that that's what heaven's going to be like. We're all going to be one human family, not no more Jew or Gentile, no more um, male or female, no more slave or free. We're all one human family, the way it was supposed to be, all of us being human to each other. So that it's... It's our arrogance that caused all this mayhem, and now God's humility has solved it. But we have to kneel with him. We have to take up our cross and love the way he loved. Okay? So this is the last, very last thing. What's really intimidating to me about all of this, the Christian view of the human person, is not only that we have to obey the natural law. It would be hard enough to just be a good person. So many people say, I'm a good person. Like, I'm not. None of us are really good people. Like, none of us live up to even human standards. Like to love our friends or to love our family. We're often cruel to our family or friends. We, or we ignore them or thoughtless or lazy. Even our natural obligations. We need divine help to fulfill them, to be good people. But not only are we obliged to obey the natural law, but Jesus comes and he ups the ante and says, now you have to obey the supernatural law. You have to be not just like a human being, but like me. Remember how he says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Or like I read in Colossians, Paul wants to present us all perfect in Christ, perfectly divine reflections of God's love. So now it's not just love your friends and your family, but love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who insult you. All this stuff that's really, really hard to do. Right? And he says, it's not even enough for you to not kill your neighbor. You have to not even think bad thoughts about your neighbor. It's not enough for you just not to commit adultery. You can't even have adultery in your heart, have impure thoughts. Like all of this, you have to be perfect. That is really hard. And there's this story in, uh, in Matthew that one time I was praying with, and it, it just caught me off guard. Remember this? While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers appeared outside wishing to speak with him. Someone told him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak with you. But he said in reply to the one who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my heavenly Father is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, that's really nice. We're all his brothers and sisters and mother. Wait, are we though? Whoever does the will of my Father, what does it say? Whoever does the will of my heavenly Father is my brother. I don't do God's will all the time. I break it because I'm a sinner. Does that mean I don't get to be his brother anymore? Well, no, because if you read the whole Gospel of Matthew, you realize that Jesus already decided irrevocably to be my brother. And this is why it matters, th this language of nature. Because like the Council of Chalcedon, I won't go into the whole thing, but in 451, the church declared that Jesus was one person, one prosopon, 
actually the word in Greek that they used was hypostasis, one person, one substance, in two natures. The word in Greek is phusis, two natures, and one hypostasis. That's called the hypostatic union. And they said there's no mixing, no division, no mingling, no confusion. He is one person but two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And that's really, really important. Because the Son of God became a son of Adam. Just like us. And so now he's in our family. And so I'm re- I was reading this the wrong way. It's not that I have to do God's will to be his brother. I need to be his brother to do his will. You see? There's no other option. I can't do it otherwise. It's like a fly has gotten caught, that's gotten caught in between the screen and the window. Have you ever seen that? Like you open the, open the screen up a little bit and the fly gets in and then it's trapped. Because it won't go down. It's just... And eventually it's going to run out of energy and food. It's going to die. But if it would just, if a fly, if you could explain to it, just go down. Like stop flying for a second. And then you could just walk out. It'd be really easy. But we're like that. Like we're trapped and we're ashamed and we're, we're trying to be like gods unto ourselves, but we are really bad at that. And we end up becoming slaves to our lower passions. And we're just like trying and trying and trying. We're scapegoating. It's not my fault. I'm still trying to be a good person. I'm not that bad. I'm better than at least that person is. And Until we finally just like run out of juice and we hit rock bottom. But if I would just kneel down in humility, repent of my sins, accept God's offer of forgiveness, and follow him in fidelity, like he's down in my cave and he's offering me help, I just have to accept it. So the good news is that we can be human. We don't have to be natural outlaws anymore. We can follow the natural law. We can even follow the supernatural law and be saints. But we have to become his brother, his sister, his mother. We have to become part of him. And that's where the sacraments come in, is that the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a son of Adam, that dynamic of divine self-emptying humility becoming flesh with the human race has to take flesh in me. I have to become Christ. You have to become Christ. We are his body. We're his hands, his feet, his arms, his legs. He is me. I am him. Both of us are one. So the Eucharist is the pinnacle of this. I cannot, without God's flesh and blood, become a human being. That's what we believe. But thank God he's given it to us. And so we can. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.